So this morning, I started to deal with typical objections to the perpetuity of all ten of the Ten Commandments under the New Covenant or in the Christian dispensation. Uh, I have said this more than once. It was by far the majority position until the last 150 years or so. Even on the... um, the vexed question, this is Alistair Begg, even on the vexed question of the place of the fourth commandment uh, under the new covenant or in the Christian dispensation, um, you can read somebody like D.A. Moody. Matter of fact, not now, but sometime, look up D.A. Moody. It's D.A. Moody, right? D.L., excuse me. It's D.A. Carson. I'm getting Gordon's disease. <laughs> It's D.L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute, okay, the turn of the century, 10s and 20s, big Bible conferences and all this stuff, the, really the public promotion of, of dispensationalism really started to grow and all that stuff. Look up D.L. Moody, Fourth Commandment, Sabbath, something like that, and he'll, he'll blow your socks off. You'll go, is this J.C. Ryle speaking? And No, it's D.L. Moody. So the fourth commandment is the vexed one in our day. I think a lot of Christians uh, would say, well, yeah, all ten commandments, but they don't really know what to do with the fourth. The first thing we have to do with the fourth is be absolutely convinced that Scripture teaches the perpetuity of the fourth commandment under the church dispensation. If you're convinced of that, then your next question is, okay, what does it look like? Which to me... if if you get it convinced of the first thing, it kind of answers a lot of the questions of what does it look like. Not all of them, and we're, we're going to deal with that. But before I deal with that, I'm going to deal with a fourth objection this afternoon. This perpetuity of all ten of the Ten Commandments would mean that the fourth commandment also carries over in the New Covenant era, the inaugurated New Covenant era. If everything you've been saying is true, then the fourth commandment carries over. And the argument would extend, since the fourth commandment obviously doesn't carry over, then everything that you've been saying is not true, okay? That's the pushback. My answer to this pushback, this would mean the fourth commandment carries over into the new covenant is, well, yes, it it, it does mean that. I'm not the first to argue that. The essential principles The essence, the core, the substance of all ten of the Ten Commandments carry over. Monotheism, the first commandment. Uh, God-revealed worship, the second commandment. Respect for the divine name, ways, words, providence, and ordinances, the third commandment. God is sovereign over our time, rest and work, the fourth commandment, and so on and so forth. The essential principles of all ten of the ten carry over. Time to work and time to stop work for the express purpose of special worship are both necessary if we are to please God. That's the fourth commandment. Tells you when to work, tells you when to stop work for a very express purpose or goal. But someone says the fourth commandment is not repeated in the New Testament. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you find those words in the New Testament? And the answer is no. At least not verbatim, word for word. Do you find the Sabbath being dealt with at all in the New Testament? 
Yes, Jesus deals with it a lot, and we're going to look at at least two instances where he does. Uh, Both of them are very instructive. The Mark chapter 2 one is extremely instructive because on the lips of your Lord Jesus, he says, the Sabbath was not made, the, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now that's pretty interesting because in the context of Jews, he doesn't say the Sabbath was made for you. He says the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. What came first? Man, he was made. Then what came next? A Sabbath that was made for the man that was made. Who's he referring to? The first Adam. So I think that's huge. So the New Testament does deal with the fourth commandment in in various places. But again, the whole argument is not verbatim, word for word. The Ten Commandments can be found in the New Testament. It's the core, the essence, the substance of that which is contained in those, in the form we find it in the Old Testament. That's what's morally binding. One day in seven, you might say. Well, who tells you which day? God. That's pretty good because God alone is Lord of the conscience. Man or the church of God does not have the authority to bind the sheep's conscience on issues that God has clearly revealed in his word, or clearly has not revealed in his word, excuse me. Like, I can't force you to wear the best-looking ties in L.A. County like I do, except this one that got bent. It's all tweaked. Um, Even a dress code. I, I think there are some things we can learn from uh, culture, uh, and I think you can learn that in the New Testament there were uh, accommodations to culture that weren't sinful. But making a dress code, if you don't have a coat and tie, you can't step into our, into our building. I think that would be wrong. God alone is Lord of the conscience. So if God gives a day and God reveals a day, then that should be Lord of your conscience. Not the pastor, not the church, not the history of the church, but the revealed will of God. So yeah, the fourth commandment isn't verbatim uh, revealed to us in the New Testament as perpetually binding on Christians, but it is dealt with in more than one text, not only in the Gospels, uh, but elsewhere. The argument has been from the beginning Uh, that uh, the essence, the core, the substance of it is morally binding. But if you're going to go that route, the fourth commandment is not repeated, therefore not binding. The first commandment, at least not word for word, is not repeated, but that doesn't make having other gods before the true God virtuous or only for Old Covenant Israel. So you've got to be careful with this pushback. It's not repeated, or it's not repeated word for word, like I argued in the first hour. Well, there's, there's only like three of them, I think, maybe four, that are, I think it's three, that are, that are repeated word for word. So you're going to, what are you going to believe in, the three commandments? I will write my three commandments on your heart and put my three commandments in your mind. You get there by 
imposing a litmus test, imposing a grid to interpret the New Testament on that you can't get from the exegesis of Scripture texts. It's somebody theorizing and saying, well, this kind of seems to fit, if not repeated, therefore not binding, not repeated, therefore not binding. Well, what do you mean by repeated? Explicitly verbatim, word by word for word, because only the three are repeated that way. No, I mean, even not just word for word, but even the substance of them, not repeated, therefore not binding. Whoa, hold on. The substance of all of them is repeated or assumed to be morally binding. So the second commandment uh, is not repeated, but that doesn't mean you can make idols. And neither is the third commandment, at least not word for word, but that doesn't mean you can take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we can go on and on. Someone might say again, in order for the fourth commandment to carry over, we would expect the New Testament Christians to meet for worship on the seventh day of the week. You ever heard that one? If the fourth commandment is binding, then it's God's law from creation all the way to the consummation that is people gather on the seventh day of the week. But in fact, the New Testament Christians didn't. Now, I know there are very scholarly Seventh-day Adventists that have written on this subject, and they try to prove otherwise. I, I think they're wrong. And then almost the entire history of the Christian church uh, thought they're wrong. Of course, their denomination is only, what, 150 years old, too. So, um, But there have been Seventh-day people for a while that are Protestants. There are some in our day. We have brethren in a sister church that used to be a part of that a denomination that were Seventh-dayers. But is it, in fact, true that if the fourth commandment's morally binding, then we have to meet on the seventh day of the week? Um, I'm, I'm going to say... No. What's binding? The form or the substance of it? That God is Lord to our time. God tells us to work. God tells us to rest. God tells us when to work. God tells us when to rest. God tells us when to work, when to rest, based on creation. Seventh day of creation is the divine exemplar resting. He worked and then he rested. That's the first creation. But there's a new creation that's been inaugurated by the resurrection. When he finished his work, he entered his rest. And his rest is the rest of resurrection. And the rest of resurrection by the Son of God was entered on the first day. So this new creation has a rest day by virtue of the Son of God entering into the glory, glorified state on the first day of the week. This is theologically why Christians say the day has changed. The command's still there, but the day of applying it has changed. And uh, I've said this before, John Owen, you could hear John Owen, the 17th century English spirit, and say, pray tell, what would it take to change the day of the Sabbath? He says, why a new creation? So I'm going to try to show you that the language of new creation is connected to the resurrection as the completion of Christ's redemptive works. He then enters into rest, and from his rest, we go work. Then we celebrate his rest, then we go work. We don't work under rest, we have rest, 
and we work after it and from it. And the Lord's Day then becomes a symbol of the eschatological state. Just like I think the first Sabbath was a symbol ultimately of the glorious state that Adam failed to enter into, so the Lord's Day becomes a weekly reminder that somebody got there. And so it should be a celebration. It should be like, it should be like the best day of the week. It should be like, I revolve my week around that thing that, that's the most glorious thing I can think of. Jesus raised, was raised from the dead on that day, and God calls all his people all around the globe and all the time zones of the earth to gather on the same day and sing praises and hear his word and all that stuff. That, that's a given in my life. Uh, and then you, you end up getting really convicted about that, and you learn how to graciously tell people, sorry, I can't do it then, but I'd love to on Saturday. I'd love to on Monday. Or I'd love to on, you know, whatever. And then they stop asking you. And you lose all your friends. No, 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 you don't. You do it nicely. But this objection assumes that the application of the Ten Commandments, this objection, uh, if Fourth Commandment, therefore... Seventh-day Sabbatarian. This objection assumes that the application of the Ten Commandments in every single case always looks the same, whatever side of the resurrection you're on. It assumes that the Fourth Commandment to be applied of this side of the resurrection looks the same as that side of the resurrection. Seventh-day Sabbath on that side of the resurrection, therefore seventh day over here. See the argument? But that doesn't fly with the second commandment itself. I've mentioned this before. Uh, The question comes to us is this. Must the application of one of the Ten Commandments look the same as it did under the Old Covenant if it is to be applied under the New Covenant? I'm going to say no. For example, the Second Commandment is still in force. You shall not make for yourself an image, carved images. Second Commandment is still in force, but the laws for what constitutes acceptable worship have changed. Now, the second commandment is seeking to guard acceptable worship. Idolatry in any form is not acceptable worship. Well, then we ask the question, what is acceptable worship? Whatever God reveals in his word to be acceptable to him. The positive law uh, sometimes is necessary to flesh out the second commandment. Uh, especially the side of the fall into sin. It's always necessary. So, for instance, somebody asked about this. Uh, wasn't there sacrifices before the Mosaic system? And the answer is yes. Isn't that interesting? So Abraham, for instance, on various mounts can be seen in the book of Genesis making an altar and offering a sacrifice there. Uh, without the Mosaic legislation. So there you have a function of sacrifice that predates Moses, that along with the Mosaic sacrificial system, once Christ comes, it's done away with. It's not like you read Genesis and go, oh, Abraham built an altar on a mountain and offered sacrifice to God. I'm going to go do the same thing. 
My wife kind of chuckled. Okay, so those were positive laws for the people at that time in the history of redemption that ultimately pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So once the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ comes, the responsibility of God's people to obey those kinds of laws has already served its purpose. Therefore, it's it's abrogated by virtue of being fulfilled. If you read the book of Hebrews, I mentioned that this morning, you'll see that over and over and over and over and over again. Now, you have some people in their scheme of thinking in our day, they see sacrifices in some of the prophets. The sacrificial system seems to be in the prophets looking forward to a day in which these blood animal sacrifices are being enacted. And so they say, well, that's the millennium. You know, that's a thousand years at the end of the... Uh, at the end of the church age that some people are looking for. But if you read the book of Hebrews, the whole thing has served its purpose. So whatever the prophets mean, they can't mean there's still going to be animal sacrifices in the future because when that which the sacrificial system pointed to comes, its typological significance has been fulfilled and erased, done away with. We can learn from them, like I said this morning. So the second commandment rules or regulates our worship. No idolatry. Then what's the opposite of idolatry? God-approved worship. What does it look like between the fall into sin and the Mosaic economy? looks like what you read there. They had sacrifices. They offered them sometimes on mounts. Matter of fact, uh, with reference to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, it says at the end of days, it's in your marginal reading, at the end of days they went to offer up their sacrifices. Of course, all the old guys are saying at the end of the week they went and did it. The seventh day was the day of no labor and rest. Could be. I think it is. Um, So it looked one way, and then it looked another way for the corporate covenanted people of God, ancient Israel, under the Mosaic law. But all that was pointing to something else. And when when the something else comes, when you read the New Testament, worship, public worship is very simple, but it's way different than it was in the Old Testament era. Now, this change in the application of the second commandment comes by virtue of the coming of Christ and his work, which is the fulfillment to which the ancient elements of worship pointed. So we could say this. We, on this side of the cross and resurrection, we worship the way we do in light of the coming and resurrection of Christ. And the revelation uh, explaining the implications of those events recorded in the New Testament. Why do you do what you do? Because this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, God has told us how to worship him in the, in the era of fulfillment. We're not in the era of promise anymore. In the era of promise, it was very carnal, it was very external, fleshly external. It was very bloody, it was very precise, and there were severe consequences for not doing it exactly as how, how God commanded it. Uh, under the new, it's, it's way different. Now, some people said, say, under the new, we're free to do whatever we want. Um, well, no. Every day's the Lord's day. Well, 
Amen. But every supper isn't, is the Lord's Supper? See what I'm getting at here? Is every day the Lord's day? Well, in the sense that God's the creator and providential ruler and he causes day and night to happen, well, yes. But the Lord's day is a technical term in the book of Revelation. It refers to the first day of the week. It's the day of the Lord. It's the, it's Jesus day. Just like the supper, is every supper the Lord's supper? Well, it, does it come from God, the creator and preserver of all food and things and people and stuff? Yes, but is it formally the ecclesiastical ordinance or sacrament of the Lord's Supper? No. Uh, so we distinguish, right? Not every day is the Lord's in the technical sense. Not every day is the Lord's supper. Not every supper is the supper in the technical sense. Uh, we distinguish because... Um, the New Testament distinguishes. There, there, there is a holy day in the New Testament, and there's holy food and holy drink in the New Testament. It's just not the same as the old. It's different. Why? Uh, the Sunday school question, why? The answer is always Jesus. So we're saying the application, what the second commandment looks like back there is not what the second commandment looks like over here, this side of the cross and resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection changes a whole lot of things. And I'll have to prove that to you. I think instinctually, most of you already, you kind of know that because you just read the Bible, whoa. But then when somebody says, you know what changed it? The resurrection. It's a new creation. It's the, the inauguration of a new covenant that has incorporated into it the moral or natural law, the Ten Commandments, on the hearts of all the recipients of God's grace, and it's also provided with positive laws, laws added to the moral law, in light of the redemptive historical conditions that have changed by virtue of the sufferings and glory of Christ. That's a real technical way of saying it, but if, if you just got 10% of what I just said, you get it. I think most of us kind of get the theological argument. It's it's dealing with a difficult text sometimes that, well, it's always that it's difficult. But again, idolatry is still a sin, uh, and we don't offer animal sacrifices at a physical temple through Levitical priests, though all believers are priests. We're all believers priests, uh, special temple priests before the coming of Christ. no. Are all believers special temple priests now? Yes. What changed it? Sufferings and glory of Christ. There's still priests. Are there no temples? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. There's still a temple, Christ, and his mystical body, the church. You are the temple of God as individuals, but the church, corporate church is called a temple as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. God's building, God's house, uh, a priesthood that is offering up spiritual sacrifice. Are there sacrifices? Are, yes, there are sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ's, to, by, offered by the priests, all of us, women priests too, in the temple, assembled church, all acceptable to God through Christ. Were there priests before? Yes. Were there sacrifices before? Yes. Was there a temple before? Yes. Is, are the temple, 
priests and sacrifice of the old exactly like they are in the new? No. So the same concepts are brought up in the New Testament as well. Temple, priests, sacrifices, acceptable to God. Same terms, excuse me. But they're transformed to fit the conditions brought in by virtue of this eclipsing of the new creation into this age by the resurrection of the Son of God. What did the pastor just mean by that? Okay, Dave's going, I don't know, but it sounds good. I'm saying the resurrection is, was the first day of a citizen living in the new creation. And since the ultimate rest that God has in store for his creatures, properly related to him, is not here, there's a sign or there's a symbol every week that it's coming. And we celebrate it in two ways. We remember back that he was raised from the dead on it. And then we remember forward that we're going to be raised from the dead by virtue of the fact that he was raised from the dead. By the way, have you ever wondered what day of the week the Lord Jesus will come back on? I know what day I want him to. I can't prove it, but it'd be great if he came back on the first day of the week. I told you so, you know. Because he was the first fruits of a great harvest, and his first fruit was on the first day. The great harvest, maybe it's on the first day. Sounds good. Sean likes it. I Don't quote me on that. But the church is called a temple, God's building, a priesthood, offers of sacrifices. All those things are this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ and the application of the second commandment. But it looks way different than it used to, doesn't it? So the moral principle comes with it. The application looks different, and I'll argue the same for the fourth commandment if and when I ever get there, but I have way too many notes. I have footnotes in sermon notes. That's interesting. Long footnotes. This one's almost half a, half a page. Um, but you see the point. The moral principle abides. The application looks different based on the conditions, changing conditions brought in by virtue of the fact that we live in the era of fulfillment, not promise. Promise looks one way, fulfillment looks another. Application of the moral law uh, takes on the conditions brought in by the redemptive historical context you're in, the Mosaic covenant looking forward to something. We're in the, we're in the fulfillment days. We're, those are the shadow lands. Uh, we're in the substance land. Uh, the shadows looked forward to the substance. But when the substance come, who is Christ, doesn't do away with the moral law. Uh, it, it, it enacts it. He enacts it under new conditions. Well, may this be helpful. I know it's a lot. And it's the afternoon. Everybody's tired. And Mario knows this. I, uh, some sermons I get excited to preach. And then the last several sermons, I haven't been very excited because he knows. He, he told me, you've been doing this stuff. You've been writing on this. You've been saying this stuff for a long time. And sometimes it becomes... Not as fresh. I wish it was always really fresh and I was bububububbling for every sermon. But again, if you can get, you don't want me bububububbling. You want me in my, under control with my loin, the loins of my mind girded and me sticking to the script, not my sermon notes, but the text 
and entailments of Holy Scripture. That's what you want. Um, but if you prepare a good lecture, pray that God turns it into a sermon. If he doesn't, at least they have good stuff. If you get 10% of what I'm saying, you're, uh, and you didn't have it before, I'll be happy. Some of you got 20, some of you got more. Some of you are connecting dots. I know because after we break, you'll pass, or you get me a text, or you send me stuff, or you read stuff three days later in your devotions, and you go, there's a connection I've never seen before. Maybe I'm making it up. Uh, A lot of times your gut's right. You might not know how to argue it all out, but there's a lot more connections than we realize. So you had a holy priesthood, you had a holy day, you had a holy place, you had holy people, and you still got all that. But it looks different. So may the Lord help us. All this is because of the Lord Jesus. And so we should be thankful to him in taking the supper. Let's pray. We thank you for this sacred meal, the Lord's Supper. It was instituted by the Lord Jesus for his people as a reminder of his death for them as a conduit through which more grace is deposited in them, and even as as an eschatological arrow uh, pointing ultimately to the fact that you're going to come again because you didn't just die. The Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and will come again. And until then, we take for our strengthening our nourishment, and we take in confidence and in great hope that someday there will be an eschatological supper of some sort, but someday there won't be these weekly Lord's suppers. Even those will, will give way to a more glorious state of existence. Until then, we gather weekly to remember the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection and remind ourselves of his coming. So bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.